So I had announced uh, a while back that during the season of Epiphany, we were going to follow the lectionary. And then a week or so, 10 days ago, I felt Christy and some others had asked me, well, are we going to read Brooks's book, How to Know a Person? Are we going to read that together? And uh, I got to thinking about that. And um, I don't typically say God spoke to me. How many know God speaks sometimes with a really quiet and distant voice? It's just almost an imperceptible nudge. And anytime I've ignored that, I have ignored it to my own hurt. Sometimes even driving. I attribute it to God, and maybe it's just, you know, if you don't believe in God, then what do you attribute it to? You attribute it to some developed sixth sense or just some biological evolutionary urge. (laughs) Obviously, we have concerns about people who hear voices all the time. I'm not saying that I hear a voice, but I believe in the Christian tradition that it is the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sometimes in traffic. The other day I was driving and before I knew it, I slowed down. I looked over, this was on 370, looked over on the left and a car, this was at night, just was spinning around in the middle of the road. And I put on the brakes to stop and I didn't have much for brake. So I felt a similar kind of nudge to spend epiphany, which includes this week and the next five Sundays, Lord willing, on Brooks's book, How to Know a Person. So hopefully if you have a book, you've already delved into it a little bit. It's very easy to read. When I posted a picture of it on Facebook, I said that this is the only book that I know of, the only author that I know of who is actually suggesting a path forward in our hopelessly divided country. And that's You know, to be endorsed like that by Alan Ellis, that's quite something. I mean, he needs to send me a check. But a few years ago, we did The Road to Character. He had a second book, which is kind of a follow-up to The Road to Character, which is called The Second Mountain. And then, of course, the book we're focusing on, How to Know a Person. Before we can deal with the solution, however, we have to clearly define what the problem is. And you really, if you're taking notes this morning, you need to write down at the top of the piece of paper the problem. I got some paper up here too, the problem. And then list the scripture passages for today because there is a problem, whether we're aware of it or not. Psalm 2 was the call to worship. And then the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 through 51, and then our gospel selection, Matthew chapter 5, I think it was beginning in verse 21 through 26. I want to tell you what the problem is, and this is not good news, and I believe this to be true. After many years, more intensely so in the last few years, on trying to understand how it is that the American church this morning, what I refer to as the popular church in America, why it is in such a mess that it's in. And I think that is incontrovertible. Now we know 
that the invisible church that is known only to God, I would use the word the elect in Christ, we know that that church is never in trouble. (laughs) In other words, the trouble that we are observing in the popular church in America today is what is visible. It is what is discerned by our five senses. But we know that the invisible church, those who are only known to God, those who have been given to Christ by the Father, even though they struggle with all of the circumstances of life, we know that ultimately that those who are in Christ count it all joy when diverse kinds of tribulation and trials show up. They are protected in the Father's hand. They are the apple of his eye. We know that. But in the visible church, in the visible confessing church uh, in America today, we're in a mess. We are hopelessly, in many ways, pitted against each other. And... This year is an election year, and already the insults and the criticisms and the uh, lack of civility is evident, and much of this is coming from the extreme right in the visible Christian church. So I've thought a lot about this, read a lot about it. I got a whole stack of books because I, I was trying to understand this, how did this develop? How did we get into this mess that we're in that I don't have to describe it anymore. You you are all familiar with it. If you're on social media, if you watch the news at all, you know that some crazy things are going on in the name of Christ. It's none of my business who you vote for. In some ways, I'm indifferent to who you vote for. I do encourage you to vote because it is a privilege in our democratic republic to vote. So I encourage you to vote. But I've come to this conclusion. It doesn't matter who occupies the White House. In the election, if Trump is the Republican nominee, if Biden is the Democratic nominee, it doesn't matter who gets into the White House. Either way, I think that God has decided to judge the American church. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will depend on the name of the Lord our God. The the command to Israel was don't go to Egypt for horses and chariots because to adopt the words of the Apostle Paul, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's a different kind of struggle going on here and conventional Tools of warfare are not going to help you. In fact, they're just going to mess you up. I got something to say this morning, and you're just going to have to let me say it. God has decided to judge the American church. It is not good news, but we should not be surprised by it. We should not say, whoa, whoa, I didn't expect that. If you see the trend, of the American church, in particular the church in the West, we should not be surprised that God has decided to
to judge the church. Look uh, with me at a couple of passages that are particularly pointed in our direction. My whole point is the hope of any person, any society, any nation, if you're a Christian believer, our hope is ultimately grounded in God's kindness leading us to repentance. If we somehow invest ourselves, and falsely so, deludedly so, in some other method or approach to solving our problems, we are going to be not only judged, but we are going to lose. We are going to lose the things that are the most important to us. If we're worried about our children and our grandchildren and what kind of future they have, our focus should not be on temporal, worldly solutions, but rather our focus should be on what the Bible tells us over and over again, that if we disobey, We will reap what we sow, but if we turn our face toward God in repentance, then God is more than willing to have mercy. Look in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a question that every believer has to answer. You can't ignore this question. But, he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, if those words don't convict you, if those words don't convict me, There's not much I can do about that. All of my yelling, screaming, cajoling, calling you an idiot, a fool, a liar, that's what Jesus said, isn't going to awaken within you this sense that it is God's kindness, his goodness, that leads us to repentance. Look with me in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. For it is time, verse 17, for judgment to begin in Washington, D.C. For it is time, brothers and sisters, that judgment begins on January 6th. It is time, brothers and sisters, that judgment should begin uh, on November 6th. What does the scripture say? You ought to be interested in it because it's directed to you. It's directed to me. What? For it is time that judgment begins at the house of God. If my premise is true, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that I just assume that you agree with it, 
if the premise is true that notwithstanding who occupies the White House, who occupies any elected office in any nation, Psalm 2 says, here's my attitude towards kings and nations. It makes me laugh. Now, where does the true power reside? It is not in any political office. It's not in any potentate or king. If we believe what the scriptures teach, the true power by which the world functions resides in God Almighty. And if God is going to judge a nation or a people, he will first judge his own people. Judgment will show up first. We will have an inkling of it first in the church. And I think that's what we see playing out. We see it playing out particularly in uh, Western culture. We see it playing out in a particularly brutal way in American culture right now. Lindsay Lloyd says, most Americans have long believed that divine providence has been central to the establishment and flourishing of the nation, speaking about our country. The history we were taught begins with the pilgrims who sought refuge in the new world to escape persecution in the old. But that didn't last for very long because Roger Williams had to found the colony of Rhode Island as a refuge for those who were facing religious persecution in Massachusetts. Now, when did they land at Plymouth Rock? Anybody remember that year? That was 16. This is why we need civil courses and church and history courses. You say, Pastor Allen, you don't even know it. Maybe you need to take a lesson. What's it say? 1620. Let's see, the Constitution was adopted in what year? 1776 was the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution was adopted in 1780. So from 1620 to 1776 is how many years? Let's see how good we're at at math. It's better than 150 years. 150 years... The pilgrims who were Puritans, who were people who were objecting to the backslidden state of the Church of England, decided they would come to the New World, right? And they landed at Plymouth Rock, so history tells us in 1620. For 150 years, they had an experiment with theocracy. Part of the reason why Roger Williams had to establish a colony called Rhode Island is because they were drowning witches in Massachusetts. <laughs> and here was a strange thing. If you were a witch tied to the end of a pole and dunked in a pond, if you were accused of being a witch or a warlock and you died then that proved that you were innocent of the charges. <laughs> because if you were truly a witch, you would have said abracadabra and come up and you would have still been alive. And so I don't know if the Puritans then said, oh, sorry, like Emily Latella on Saturday Night Live. Sorry. 
So this experiment for 150 years, and all you have to do is read. All you have to do is read the history. I can give you a Mark Knowles book on American history, and all, all the scholars agree that this 150-year experiment with a theocracy, imagine, you had to be in church on Sunday. Part of the reason why I believe the American church is under judgment is because people that know better know they should be in church on Sundays are not. But if you were a Puritan, you were forced to attend. And the ushers walked around with long poles with a string on the end of it with a feather tied to it And during the two and a half hour sermon, which was very much like a lecture, I forget how many hours, it was like the average Puritan would listen to in their lifetime 10 to 12,000 hours of sermons. And if you were nodding off asleep, I think we need to institute that here. If you were nodding off asleep, the ushers went around and stuck that pole with a feather tied to the end of it and tickled your nose. It didn't work. You cannot compel people into transformation. That is only something that the Holy Spirit can do in a person's heart. And we have lost this conviction in the American church. We are unwilling to allow God to sovereignly work in the hearts of people. We say, it's got to be this way. We're tired of losing. We want to win. And it is disastrous. You can say, I'm wrong. You can say, I'm a false prophet. You can say whatever you want. But I believe that God has decided to judge the American church. So Roger Williams, he was the first Baptist. And he said, All you people that can't get along with those Puritans and pilgrims over in Massachusetts, come on over to Rhode Island. So you ever go down the street, you see a church sign that says Free Will Baptist Church, Free Will Baptist Church. That's because they're not reformed. They they believe that every person has the ability to accept God's offer of salvation or reject it, free will. That's where it started. It's like Dan Scott has said so many times. All you got to do is read. All you got to do is read. Unfortunately, the most popular leaders in the American church right now are people who peaked in high school. And the other people who have peaked in high school too, that 40% of the country is entranced with the media leadership now in the popular church in America. Now that sounds like an elitist thing to say. If it is, I repent. And you can't argue with my repentance because it's God's kindness that is leading me to it. I think it is an accurate assessment of where we are at. So most people think that the nation in some way has its founding has something to do with God. That is true. But when we get to 1776, 
the Constitutional Convention, the first two Constitutional Conventions, and finally they adopt the Constitution. And what had happened in Europe during those intervening 150 years, the 100-year war, the 30-year war, Americans were very interested in the interregnum, which took place where a king was decapitated. The interregnum, that period between kings in England, what happened in 1789 in France could have happened in England. And the Americans observed all of this. They were appalled in many ways by the nature of religious wars in Europe. And so when the country was founded officially then, we're not talking about the 150 years where the Puritan experiment took place and then finally the Puritan canopy collapsed, the founders of the nation were sure to not make religion a test for public office. But notwithstanding, most people think that our nation somehow was founded by God. Abraham Lincoln ended slavery in the Emancipation Proclamation. These are his words, by the gracious favor of Almighty God. There's a great deal of argumentation about whether, uh, whether Lincoln was actually a Christian. He did not habitually attend church. He was raised in Illinois. His parents were reformed, and he pushed back against this idea of predestination and election. He would occasionally wander into church. Occasionally, he would sit in the back. His most famous line is, the preacher had a very good sermon this morning, but when he got to the end of the sermon, he didn't call for action on the part of people. I believe personally, I believe that Lincoln was a Christian, but there's a great deal of back and forth as to whether he was or not. But nonetheless, these are his words. The Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation came about by the gracious favor of Almighty God. In America, this is Lindsay Lloyd talking, politicians and the general public have long held that the nation was ordained by a higher power. But the trend in the United States, and this is part of the reason why we are in the trouble we're in, the trend in the United States is mirroring a process that's been underway for decades in Western Europe, the rise in numbers of people with no religious affiliation. Now, not this last Easter, but the Easter before, uh, that was my Easter Day message, the, the rise of the, of the ums, the nuns, and the duns. The rise in numbers of people with no religious affiliation, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N. N-U-N-S, the nuns. In other words, the Pew Research Foundation, they do these surveys all the time, and there's a box on there that asks you, what is your religious affiliation? And it'll be like Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, and then there's a box that you would check if you have no religious affiliation, and that box is named nuns. So, in 2009, 17% of the people surveyed checked the box, none. But 10 years later, in 
29% of people checked the box, none. So, here's the question that looms then. And I'm describing to you the problem this morning. So, you sense the urgency of the problem that will drive you to read and digest what David Brooks has to say because if we are, and the American church is under the judgment of God, you and I who are part of, we believe that we are part of God's elect. Notwithstanding what happens to America, what happens to the rest of the world, I don't know why far-right groups boo Pence in their meetings because Pence, I think, has got it right. He says, first, I'm a Christian. Secondly, I'm a conservative. Thirdly, I'm a Republican. It seems to me that the man has, first of all, you and I are citizens of another country, another tribe and nation. You and I are Christian. It's a third tribe. So the question then that is being argued back and forth Was America founded as a Christian nation? And therefore, in light of this neglectful slide away, 12% increase in the nuns in a 10-year period, someone sounds the alarm and says, our nation was founded as a Christian nation and we're going to do something about this. Those damn liberals... And you say, well, that's an awful thing to say in church, Pastor Allen. Well, all you have to do is listen to Turning Point USA. They just had their America Fest last month. And every one of the speakers just about cussed. Roseanne Barr was one of the speakers. Steve Bannon was one of the speakers. Steve Bannon said, we're not going to let these sons of bitches take our country. There are children in the audience, like Avery and Jackson. Jackson didn't even look up when I said that. I mean, last week when I said the F word, Jackson, his head popped up, and he looked at me like, Pastor Allen. Now, granted, it's not a church service. It's a political rally with 13,000 people. But Turning Point uh, USA is an overtly Christian 501c3 organization. And my contention is, and you've heard it from me over and over again, that we have lost the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in our culture. And we have decided because we, nobody likes to lose it. All right, let's take a little potty break right now because everybody's nervous right now. Let's take a little potty break. You know, you know I've had a love affair with the Andy Griffith show since I was, well, Opie's age. I just love it. And every night it's on channel 24 at seven o'clock and I check it out after the news. I check it out thinking that maybe there's going to be an Andy Griffith show that I have not seen. Something discovered in a dark locked up room somewhere an undiscovered Andy Griffith. I would rejoice. You know, I'm not a dancer, but I would dance. I'd be like, that's as much as I can do. It's kind of like I've hit electrical wire. So I decide that I'm going to watch one of the two. There's two. One, one comes on 7, the other comes on 
you know, you hit the little information button, and, and then I'm like, I've seen that. Well, yeah, you've seen it, you idiot. You've seen all of them. I, and I sit there in the chair, and I mouth the words. I mouth Barney's words. I mouth Andy's words. Sarah, get me Juanita. <laughs> this show I decided to watch, they're going to have like a town affair. And the boys are going to race. And Opie, uh, he's kind of like me, you know. I was on the track team in junior high school, and you know what my position was? I was the assistant manager, which means I had to go and, and pick up the towels and the jock straps in the locker room, like when we were somewhere else, and make sure everything got on the bus. Yeah, that was my vaunted position, because I couldn't run. No, not with... I mean, not run well enough to be on a track team, so I was the assistant manager. There were other perks that came with it, but I won't go into those. Now. So Opie is having dreams at night about how he's going to win. He's going to cross the line. His father is going to put the golden medal around his neck. And he's having dreams, and he's smiling big. The day comes, the race is there, and Opie doesn't win. He doesn't even place. He's devastated. We've heard the phrase before, oh, be a good loser. Who wants to be a good loser? But we know that losing actually builds more character and integrity in us than winning. Be careful now if you agree with that. If you agree with that, if you agree with that, we don't like it, but we know it's true. Because you know why? Winners get to, rewrite, get to write the history. If Opie won, he'd say, yeah, I knew I was going to win. He'd tell the reporters. If Opie loses, somebody else is writing. Yeah, Opie, even though he's a sheriff's son, he just didn't have what it took and he lost. Opie is devastated, and his father's having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with him. And he says, Opie, you have to learn how to be a good loser. I don't want to be a good loser. I want to be a good winner. It's the perfect Andy Griffith shot. Opie, he's not sitting on a couch. You know how a kid will sometimes slump so far down in a couch that their head is like in the crack of the couch and their back's on the couch and their legs are just spread out. He's just as dejected as can be. And so Andy, as his father, said, this is a teachable moment. We don't learn things when we win. We learn things when we lose. We learn things when we have to ask ourselves, God, why is it right now I feel more like the tail than the head? And God says, well, let me help you with that. It's because you haven't obeyed. You haven't done the hard things with true joy. You haven't lost with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. So the last thing that Andy says to Opie, he says, Opie, there's just one thing. How many know Andy Griffith? It's a great show. If there wasn't a Bible, we could live our lives by Andy Griffith. He said, 
Opie, there's one thing I want you to know. I am deeply disappointed in you. And that's just like pouring cold water. How it resolves is that Opie goes down to, you know, the courthouse one day, and he walks in, he, he runs, comes, stands before his father's desk. His father's the judge, too. And he says, Pa, I don't want you to be disappointed in me. And then comes the reconciliation. I think that God has the right to say to us in the American church right now, I'm disappointed in you. I'm disappointed in you. Because we are being brainwashed into thinking that the only significance that we have as the American church is when we win the way we want to win and we get what we want. We don't have, the American church does not have the right to win. And that's why I say I believe it doesn't matter what happens. I encourage everybody to vote. Vote for who you want. Discharge your duty as an American citizen. But I believe that God has decided no matter what the outcome of that election is, whatever importance it has, he has decided that he's going to judge the American church. That should get our attention. And the fact that it doesn't get our attention proves the truthfulness of what I'm saying. We're more concerned about the kingdom power and glory the way that we understand it as Americans than we are in God's kingdom, God's power, and God's glory. There's a lot more to this, as you can tell. We heard a stunning gospel passage this morning. I'm telling you, I think if I had been alive when Jesus was saying things like he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that I would have said, that guy's crazy. Matthew decides that he's going to have Jesus comment on the law. And his first commandment is about a Sabbath day keeping. And he has a different take on that. We know that because, you know, one day Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and it's a Sabbath day and some of his disciples reach out and they, you know, you know how you do that? You kind of strip off some of the grain. They put it be, between their hands and rubbed it. And it's like, um, uh, what do they call it? Granola pop it in their mouth. And the Pharisees, of course, said, oh, well, well, wait, wait a minute, this is Sabbath, and that qualifies as work. This isn't supposed to happen. And what does Jesus say? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this is what the law says. And then he goes on to say, what about David? When he was being chased by Saul, and he shows up at the tabernacle, and the only food there, he's famished, he's going to die. He takes the unleavened bread and eats it. So the first commandment has to do with our service towards God. But the second commandment, he talks about thou shalt not kill. You're on overload this morning, but just let me leave this 
Frederick Dale Bruner, God bless the man. His commentary on this passage, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, it's just unbelievable. He says, if you're angry with your brother, now in the King James Version, it says, if you're angry without with your brother without a cause. And that was, <laughs> that was a, how many know we like the fine print there? The buyer beware. How many of us have said to ourselves, I'm angry with that person. Now, I, have a, I have a good reason to be angry with them. And Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, but I have a cause, so I'm justified in nursing this resentment. Now, that seems to be King James Version. That was their take on it. Because how could you say, if you're angry with your brother, without a qualifying phrase? How many have ever gotten angry with somebody? How many are angry with somebody right now? Ooh. Jesus said to them, you know, the Old Testament law said, thou shalt not murder. But now he's saying, there is a way of killing somebody. This is why I'm using this passage, because this is what we do when we dismiss another person that we may not agree with. We dismiss them either violently, vocally, or with a sense of indifference. We don't see the person. And Brooks is telling us the purpose of the book, if you have it, is on page 15. Here it is. The purpose of this book is to help us become more skilled at the art of seeing others and making them feel seen heard, and understood. Why is this important? He says that's the stated purpose. What does that have to do with what Jesus is saying? Do you know how many times I've gone to church with bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment? Resentment is kind of seething, tamped down anger. And what Jesus is saying, here's the first commandment, you have to obey the Sabbath. This is your duty towards God. Second commandment that he comments on is really about our relationships with other people. He said, when you go to church, leave your gift at the altar, right? We would say that's talking about going to church. How many times do you and I go to church and we worship God and Jesus has said, if you know that your brother has something against you, that means not only do you have to keep track of the people that you have something against, <laughs> which we find that pretty easy to do. We keep a pretty long list. People that have ticked us off, people that we don't like, people that we're upset with, people that are unlike us, people that don't deserve to be alive. People that need to get their act together. People that need to get a job. This is what we hear now. We got that list. But what about the list of people that are offended by something that we have done? I'm supposed to keep that list too. He says, when you come to worship, you should have a heightened consciousness of the people that you have wronged. 
Ain't nobody got time for that, Pastor Allen. I'd be running around all day saying, did I do something to offend you? Did I call you a liar and an idiot? You know what? We should be uncomfortable. Because the judgment that is coming and is in fact at work right now on the American church isn't anybody else's fault but mine. It's my heart. It's my heart. Little Lord baby Jesus, help us. Everybody loves little Lord baby Jesus in the manger at Bethlehem. We just came away from Christmas. Now, all of a sudden, the first Sunday after Epiphany, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Today, the Father says to the Son, I have begotten you. I've set you on my holy hill in Zion. And the kings of the earth, if they're not reconciled, I just laugh. I am full of derision about their false deluded sense of power. Kiss the sun. Not as Judas kissed the sun. Kiss the sun in reconciliation, in obeisance to. Bend the knee. Bow down before him, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That is our first calling. That is our first First responsibility. First of all, I am a Christian. First of all, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. First of all, I should fully intend that my life reflects that I am a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Amen.